0: Well, good morning on this beautiful spring day. um, Aren't you glad uh, and rejoicing that old man winter has gone to bed? I'm just going to name it and claim it and believe it. But it is good, so good to be together this morning as we celebrate our Lord. Uh, Today is Palm Sunday and I'll my whole sermon is about that, so I'll, I'll not explain what that means uh, right yet, but it is good to come together. And today, I, I can't think of a better way to celebrate it than to um, dwell a bit together in God's Word, which we're about to do, and then to hear the testimony of God's grace in the life of somebody he has transformed by his mercy and grace, and that's something we're going to do, and then partake of the Lord's Supper together and just remember what Christ has done. So it's a good Palm Sunday. I'm glad that you have joined us today. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to grab them now and open them to Zechariah chapter 9. So we've been in Matthew. This is just a few pages the other way, a few pages to the, to the west. Zechariah chapter 9, and our text is going to be verses 9 all the way to the end of the chapter. So nine 9 to Zechariah 9.17. So let me read that. The word of God says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoner of hope, prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore you to double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling. Stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great is his beauty! Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young woman. Let's pray. Lord, I, I, we pray together that you would be exalted in our hearts now as we think about the work of Christ. As we think about that day when Christ rode into Jerusalem, I pray that you would be exalted. Your hope, your mercy, your grace, your power, your authority, your goodness, your beauty, I pray that all of those things in our hearts would just explode and we would trust only you can take prisoners of sin and make them prisoners of hope. That's a work that only the gospel can accomplish and you have accomplished it in us. Lord, I I pray for the, for hearts that might be saturated in unbelief this morning, that you would break through by your grace and in your mercy And show Christ as who he really is. And in that compelling vision, men and women and children would be saved. Lord, I pray for hope for all of us on dark Mondays, on dark weeks. When sin seems to be winning, when evil seems to be triumphing. I pray for the hope that this passage gives us. The hope that is in Christ alone. Help me, I pray, to preach this well this morning, and may Christ be glorified in what we do. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to set up this sermon today with two historical points of reference, one very recent and one that goes back a ways. Uh, And the reason I want to do that and begin that way is because this passage from Zechariah will provide the connection. The between these two historical references. This passage, like one historical reference absolutely gives hope in the other. So one historical reference is going to be hopeless, and the other historical reference is what gives hope in that hopelessness. Are you with me? So the recent reference is from Monday of last week. You have surely heard that on that day, a very troubled young woman... 28 years old, entered at the Covenant School in Nashville, Tennessee, armed armed and with evil intent. And she proceeded to kill three nine-year-old children and three adults. The police responded with amazing quickness and courage and stopped her from causing more harm using lethal force. Every death that day was tragic. But one, one of those, among all of those massive tragedies, struck really home for me. The pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church, the church which hosted the school, which ran the school, the pastor, the lead pastor of that church, tragically lost his nine-year-old daughter. There's a dark day in Nashville. A dark day for Christians. I think we should pray for the suffering of our brothers and sisters in Nashville. I, I, for the families of those who were hurt and killed this, in this shooting, we should pray. And we should pray for the church. I mean, can you imagine one church and all that loss? It's gonna be a lingering loss. It's gonna be a long time of healing. It's a hard time for that church and it will be for quite some time. We should pray for the pastor. We should pray for his family. We should pray for the Covenant Presbyterian Church of Nashville. That the God of comfort would bring healing and hope in the light. And light in the midst of that darkness. Because that's what that was. Darkness. So that's the recent historical reference. The distant historical reference I want to bring to mind happened in Jerusalem about 1993 years ago. Approximately we don 't know for sure, the Lord Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem for the final time in his earthly ministry. You, you might have read the account of the poem, of Palm Sunday and recalled that he was riding on a donkey. the The crowds enthusiastically received him the the leaders were upset by it but the but the crowd's enthusiastically received him they they were shouting hosanna which means lord save us and putting down palm branches in the road and putting down their cloaks in the road for the like a like a like a scene of royalty riding in the king riding in to the capital and that we call Palm Sunday. We celebrate that triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And it's the beginning of Holy Week. This is the, the kickoff for Holy Week, which culminates like this this day, the Palm Sunday points to Good Friday because Jesus was riding into Jerusalem with a purpose. He was riding his colt. He was riding that donkey to the cross. And that cross, that Good Friday, we're gonna get together on Good Friday and we're gonna think about that. We've got five reasons why that is really tremendously good news for us. That Friday, the arrest, the crucifixion, that pointed to the triumphant resurrection, which we will gather next Sunday to celebrate. We should consider the context of Palm Sunday and what Jesus was writing into the the people, the reason why they were so ecstatic, okay, the reason why they were were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, it's because of their context. You see, they were an, an oppressed people. They were oppressed by Rome. Because of their sin and the sin in the world in which they lived, a lot because of their own sin, they were suffering. In that sense, Jesus was riding into a dark day in Israel. He was riding into a dark day. They had longed for the promised Messiah. They believed it. They, parents would talk to their children. They would, they would say, one day, one day we won't be ruled like this. One day, a Messiah will come. We will have a liberator from God, and he will set the captives free. And owing to a lot of factors, on that Sunday, they saw in Jesus that Messiah. Messiah. They, they were seeing Jesus riding in and thinking, that must be him. The king was riding in to set his people free. They did not understand the fullness of it. And this week is gonna go up and down with people's response. They did not understand the full extent of a saving work that this king would accomplish for them. But they believed that this was the long-awaited king riding in Jerusalem, humble, mounted on a donkey. And so they cried out, Hosanna. Lord, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew 21, which records these events for us, quotes our text, quotes Zechariah 9.9. 9. So Matthew 21.5 says, basically what Zechariah says, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. So I, that's why I chose Zechariah and that's why I know Zechariah is talking about Christ ultimately and mainly. And that's why we're going to be here today. And I, I think the events last Monday at least illustrate for us our need for what happened on that Sunday in Jerusalem around AD 30. The oppression they felt, friends, we still feel. The oppression that was there, the darkness that was there. It's different now. We're on the other side of the cross. We look forward to Christ writing again. But we know, we know, we feel it. Monday helped us to feel it. To see that we need that king riding into Jerusalem. And we need him to ride again, bringing righteousness and salvation at last. So as we look at this passage in Zechariah on this day and learn what our king is like and why we need him I think we should allow this passage to put into context all that we face right now in this broken, sin-cursed world as we wait for our king to ride again one last time not on a donkey but on a white horse and usher in the full extent and realization of his work. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you seven things that we learned from Zechariah about our king riding in. Seven things about him, and then two things about us. And may the Lord give us hope in these days, hope in our Lord Jesus Christ alone. So seven things to know about your king, our king that we see. I think all of these real clearly from Zechariah 9, 9 through 17, all very simple, all very good. The first one is that the promised king is coming. There was a good reason for the original Palm Sunday for the people to assemble and rejoice. There was good reason for the people to cry Hosanna and spread out their cloaks and palm branches. The king is coming. So look at verse nine again. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I mean, that's that's cause for rejoicing. Great, he says, great rejoicing. The king is coming to you. And as we'll see in a, in a, in a bit, he's not just coming for one nation. I mean, there's a, a reference. He says, "O daughter of Zion, the children of Abraham, right? Like he's talking to Israelites and you might think, well, I'm not an Israelite. I'm not, how, should I be greatly rejoicing? And I, I could take you... If, if we had more time, I'd probably take you to Galatians 3 and 4 and learn that we in Christ are the children of Abraham. But we'll just see that goodness of this going to the nations, this goodness to the nations with the king riding in in a bit. He is coming. He's coming to you. He's coming for you. He's riding into Jerusalem, riding that colt to the cross. Again, in a few days, Jesus would die on a cruel cross. And he would be buried. He's riding in to save us. So we have cause for great rejoicing. The second thing I want you to see is that the king is righteous. And I I think that means totally without sin, totally righteous. And there are two reasons why that's really good news for us. The first is that people, and you know, I I, I thought this is an obvious truth, but then we've had so many bad kings that it's hard for us to know this. But people flourish under a good king. People languish Badly under a bad king, right? Bad king, a suffering people. Good king, the people flourish. And again, you might not know that because we we long for a good king. We long for a good leader. You know, if, you've read, if you're reading through the Bible and you're all the way to the kings already, if there's one thing that the, all those years of one bad king after another... It's one thing that it teaches us is that bad kings make people suffer, but a righteous king. Oh, how good and sweet it would be to have a good king. And Jesus is the righteous king. riding into Jerusalem. The third reason why that is really good news for us has to do with, I mean, the second reason why that that fact that he is righteous is good news for us is that it has to do with Christ standing in our place and dying as a sacrifice for our sin. You see, the, in the Old Testament law, the lamb that was selected for the sacrifice had to be without spot or blemish, right? So the, the, you had to have a lamb that didn't have any imperfections, any, anything about it that would show in something that wasn't right. It had to be perfect, no blemish. You could not just take the worst of your flock, you know, one that you would want to cull anyway just to get rid of it and slaughter it as an offering for your sin or the sin of the people. You couldn't do that. And the reason wasn't just because, like, you don't want to give God what is not valuable to you or you don't want to give God what you would normally get rid of anyway. I mean, that's there, I think, but that's not the main thing. The, The main thing is that it was not acceptable to God because it didn't illustrate well what it was meant to illustrate. Those Old Testament sacrifices were an illustration of what Christ would do. So the lamb had to be perfect to illustrate that our Savior is righteous. If a lamb had a blemish, it had cause in itself to be culled, right? You, you want to get rid of the bad thing, right? You, it, it have reason in itself to be killed. The lamb for the sacrifice had to be perfect and innocent. No reason, a lamb, no reason in itself to die. And that's a picture of Christ. Peter teaches us in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, that that was a picture of what the king was coming to do, to be the lamb. That passage says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus had no blemish or spot, no sin in himself, no reason for himself to be condemned. That was a prerequisite for one to die as a substitute for others. He could not be guilty himself. He had to be sinless. He had to be righteous. Jesus had to be righteous so that he could die for you and for me in our place. So rejoice, O daughter of Jerusalem, Your king is righteous. The third thing to know about your king is that he rides humble. He rides in humble. He didn't ride in on a white horse or with a sword or with an iron rod. On that blessed Sunday, Jesus rode in on a donkey, humble and seeking to establish peace. It's significant that he rode in on his way to Calvary on a donkey. Jesus rode in triumphantly into the capital, but not with warriors. He he rode in with fishermen and tax collectors. That's amazing, especially in light of the next point. The fourth thing to know about your king is that he will cut off the chariot and the war horse. Verse 10 says he's on a donkey, right? And we know that he's riding in with fishermen and they're they're not warriors. They're not even good swordsmen. Do you you remember that scene in, in Gethsemane? You know, I don't know how you picture Peter cutting off the guy's ear, but it wasn't like some ninja move. He was trying to take the dude's head off, and the guy ducked a little bit, and he only caught his ear. These were fishermen. They were not warriors. Yet, through Christ's work, he will destroy chariots and war horses. This is the power of God in the gospel, in the person and the work of Christ, the king riding into Calvary. I mean, scriptures are replete of this power. No weapon against him shall prosper. The gates of hell will not prevail. No one who stands against Christ will prevail. No one, not in the end. Not a single tongue will resist forever the confession of Christ. No knees will remain stiff. Every knee will one day bow. Every tongue will confess this king he comes in humble and on a donkey and with fishermen and yet he will cut off the chariot and the war horse oh how we need that word on dark mondays when evil seems to be triumphing right when a shooter seems to have the upper hand with christians children and adults and when politicians said they had it coming some politicians said they had it coming for their biblical morality Oh, how we need that word when we face persecution and tribulation and trials and hardship. When we feel like hope is lost. When we feel like the sin that we struggle with is winning. We need that hope. The king is riding into Jerusalem and he will cut off the chariot and the war horse. The fifth thing to know is at the end of verse 10. Your king shall speak peace to the nations. This peace that Jesus will make by his work on the cross is between God and his people who are scattered among the nations. Right after Jesus died on the cross and rose again and just before his ascension into heaven, Jesus told his apostles to go and make disciples of all nations. This is the great commission and we are told to preach to the nations. And that's why we as a church support missionaries. That's why we're sending a team to Switzerland. That's why we're we, we want to see the gospel go, this gospel witness to go to the ends of the earth because this is preaching Christ. This is Christ preaching peace to the nations through his church. It is in a very real sense, his peace speaking to the nations. So that's the f- fifth thing. The sixth thing to know about your king is that he shall rule from sea to sea. On Palm Sunday, Jesus was writing into Jerusalem. Yet rule of the king, yet the, this rule, this domain, this, this kingdom of the king would not simply be Jerusalem and it would not even simply be Israel. The rule of the king would be every tribe and tongue and nation on earth. Jesus is the savior of the world. This is not a Middle Eastern religion. The good news of Jesus and his power in the hearts of his people extends to people groups all over the planet. From the large nations like, you know, people from the U.S. and from China and from Russia, to believers in tiny, obscure tribal groups like the Piapoco and the Yuana, Jesus will reign in the hearts of His people. But it's not just that; He's not just talking about a spiritual reality of Jesus reigning in the hearts of His people. He shall literally reign from sea to sea. One day, in the timing and the providence of God, Jesus will reign everywhere. His reign will be full and complete and realized, and it will extend to every inch of his universe. One day, Jesus will literally reign from sea to sea. I've quoted this line, this famous line from Abraham Kuyper many times, maybe four times over the years, but it fits really well here so I'll just quote it again Abraham Kuyper this Dutch pastor and politician in the 1800s said powerfully there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all does not cry mine our king reigns and his rule shall be from sea to sea and that friends ought to give you confidence in the end, it does not depend on who becomes our next president or who controls Congress or the courts or what laws are passed or how people treat Christians. And I think all that's important, but our hope does not rest there and it cannot. Our hope is that our king is coming and he shall rule from sea to sea. The seventh thing that you should know about your king, I get from verse 16. It's says Your king will save his people. It says literally, on that day, the Lord their God will save them as a flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall be on his land. Man, that is such good news. And it's so definite in its language. The king shall save his people. All of them. All of his people will be saved. And perhaps that makes you wonder if you're one of his people who are going to be saved. Are you one that the king shall save? You ever ask yourself that? Am I one that the king will save? You know, there's a way to know. There's a, a definite way to know without a doubt that you are one that the king shall save. You can know that you are part of the king's people and rejoice greatly in the truth of Zechariah nine sixteen. You know how? You can know that you are His people, and that He will save you by faith in Jesus Christ alone. You can trust this King who is riding into Jerusalem. You can trust this King who is righteous and has salvation. You can trust the one who rides in in humility and in meekness, and yet cuts off the chariot and the war horse. You can trust in this king who speaks peace to the nations. You can trust this king who shall reign from sea to sea. Trust in the king who saves your, his people. Then you will know. Then you will be saved. And on the other side of that, you can know for sure that you're not his people too. You know how? Reject him. Persistently. Persistently. Turn away because you are in love with this world. Turn away because it it strikes you as foolish to believe in a man who died on the cross. Turn away because you don't think you need saving. Persist in your unbelief. Oh, how I pray you won't do that this morning or keep doing that. I pray with all my heart that instead you will trust in the person and the work of Jesus Christ and rejoice greatly in the truth of what Jesus did on Palm Sunday. On his way to the cross, our king is coming and he shall save his people. So those are the seven things to know about your king. There's probably more. There's more from Zechariah 9, 9 through 17. Now two things I want you to know about you that it says here, and they are pretty encouraging when you put them together. The first thing to know as you, about you, as you can see from verse 11, is that we are prisoners set free. That's so good. You see, we were prisoners to sin and death. We were in that waterless pit, waterless, lifeless pit. We could know it. We could feel it. It was like having fetters on our wrists and ankles. Sin was our master. We were its prisoner and it was leading us to death. But the king rode into Jerusalem 1,993 years ago to set prisoners free from that lifeless pit. If left there, we would die of thirst. No hope, no life. But the king rode in and he went to the cross and we are prisoners no more. We are set free. Listen to how Paul put it in Romans 6, 16 through 17. Listen to the image he uses in this passage. He says, What then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either the sin which leads to death or obedience which leads to righteousness? Listen to this. But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves to sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin... Have become slaves to righteousness. No longer slaves, no longer prisoners in the waterless pits. Our King has come, and look how He has accomplished this emancipation. Back in Zechariah chapter nine, verse—I mean, yeah, nine, verse eleven. He says, "As for you also, because of the blood of My covenant with you." I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit, the blood of my covenant. Doesn't that sound just like Jesus said when he gave us the Lord's Supper as an ordinance? Mark 14, 24, Jesus said, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. The king rode into Jerusalem that day to free you from your slavery to sin, and he did that by his blood. Now, here's the thing, I'll just... Real quick aside here. I know that you sometimes feel like you are still a slave to sin. You know when you feel like you're a slave to sin? I think Paul alluded to it. It's when you like submit to sin, but maybe you struggle with sin and maybe you feel sometimes like sin is winning. But I think there are two truths to cling to that can help you. First, you are no longer, the reality, the theology, the truth is that you are no longer a slave to sin. As you can see in the Romans passage. You can, by God's grace to you in Christ and through the power of his Holy Spirit in you, working through many different means of grace, means like godly relationships, means like accountability with other believers, means like the church, means like his word, means like your own effort, your own striving against sin. You can push back on sin and you can have victory even over the sin that still usurps the role of master in your heart. You can resist and grow and have victory over your sin. That's a truth to hold on to. Here's another one. One day, sin won't have any tug on your heart at all. You will. There's a day coming if you are in Christ when you will no longer be tempted to sin. One day when the work of God in Christ is fully realized in our lives, we won't even struggle. We won't even, there would be no sway that sin has over us. I love that. What hope that gives me today. He has saved me, a former prisoner from that waterless pit. I am no longer a prisoner of sin. Yet, both Paul and Zechariah seem to think there's still a sense in which I'm a prisoner. Paul calls me a slave of righteousness. And Zechariah calls me, and he calls you and all those who are in Christ by faith, prisoners of hope. You can see that in verse 12. I think that's the second thing to note about you. First thing, you're no longer a prisoner in that waterless pit. Second thing, you are now a prisoner of hope. Think about what that means, being a prisoner of hope. What does it mean to be a prisoner of hope? Like chained to hope. Like I can't get away from hope. Only Jesus can take former prisoners of sin and make them prisoners of hope. My chains to sin are broken. And now what I am forever chained to is hope in my Lord Jesus Christ. I am a prisoner of hope. So on that dark Monday last week, and on your dark Mondays, your dark Tuesdays, your dark days, these days that often happen in the course of our lives, we are not free to fall back into a waterless, helpless, hopeless pit. You are a prisoner of hope. Oh, what great truce to remember on Palm Sunday, right? Jesus takes former prisoners of sin through his work on the cross and he makes them prisoners of hope. Our king has come. He's ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey on his way to the cross. And he died on that cross. We'll come together again next Friday evening, Good Friday, and the elders are going to teach five ways five, that... Help us to understand that truth. He died on that cross. And then next Sunday, we'll come together again and celebrate that our King is alive and the tomb is empty. And our hope in all of it is that our King has come. He is righteous. He is humble. He cuts off the chariot and the war horse. He speaks peace to the nations. He shall rule from sea to sea. He shall save his people. And that means we are no longer prisoners to sin and death. No more. Now we are prisoners to hope. And one more thing, friends, in closing. I want you to know today that our king will come again. He will ride again. There's a promise. He rode into Jerusalem that day on a donkey. He will ride again, but this time not on a donkey. On a white horse with a sword and with an iron rod. He will come and the full realization of his kingdom will be established and he will indeed rule from sea to sea. Our good, saving, gracious king will ride. Let that give you hope today. No matter what you're facing in your struggles against sin and the persecution that we are bound to endure, let that give you hope. In fact, be chained friend, be chained to hope, be a prisoner of hope. All right, I'm going to pray. And then I've asked David Johnson, my son and my brother in Christ to come and share how God has worked in his life. So let's pray. You are so good and so gracious and so kind, Lord. We were rebels. We were slaves. We were nobody bound to sin and death and rebellion against our God. But you have sent Christ, our Savior, and he rode into Jerusalem that day to free us from that and to make of us prisoners Prisoners of hope. You've set us free. Oh, Father, I pray this week that we would pay special attention to that, that we would use this normal rhythm in the life of the church to celebrate the reality of the gospel, that you give hope when there is hopelessness. And Lord, we pray together as a congregation for the church in Nashville, the Covenant Presbyterian Church. We pray that you would show your comfort on this Sunday morning when they celebrate the Palm Sunday in light of what happened last Monday. I pray for their pastor. I pray for his wife. I pray for that little girl's brothers. I pray for all of the families of those who were slain that day. Lord, would you bring comfort through your gospel and through the hope of Easter, through the hope of the resurrection, through the hope of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.